Well, we may have lost a few to the warmth and the sunshine, um, but thanks a lot for coming back. And we're really excited with the afternoon agenda. It, it, it looks terrific. Uh, 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 we're, um, and we're happy that you're, you're still joining us. Um, the, the, we're going to kick it off uh, with a lecture on initial treatment of hepatitis C uh, uh, and with a focus on some of the newly approved uh, medications in the, in the last year. There's been a couple of new uh, shifts to our armamentarium for hepatitis C, and we have, there's no one better than Kristen Marks to uh, put it in perspective and tell us how, to, how, how these new innovations fit uh, with the approach to hepatitis C treatment. Kristen's an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell, just up the road. So thanks very much, Kristen. Hi, everyone. Uh, I can't believe I can com could compete with that weather, so I'm really happy to see you all back. Um, I will, as, just, as mentioned, discuss the newer treatments for hep C, and I'll kind of focus in on initial treatment, and I think then some of our cases might fill in some of the gaps of things that I don't get to during this talk. Um, okay, I'm trying to advance. I want to make sure I'm doing it right. This. So um, I'll focus on, oh, so these are my uh, disclosures. I don't think I'm controlling it. I'm, I'm good now? Okay. Oh, there we go. So, um, so we're going to focus in on a few learning objectives. First, we'll talk about uh, the recommended regimens for initial treatment, and we'll focus on what the IDSA ASLD guidance document uh, um, says about these things. Uh, we'll also talk about when to do hep C test, testing for resistance for the hep C virus. And then also we'll talk about the newer regimens and some of the sort of advantages and limitations of each. So how many HCV-infected patients do you personally manage? So um, I would consider this people you, you're, you're writing the prescription for or managing the therapy of when you answer this question, not just kind of hep C patients in your panel, the ones you're actually uh, treating or have treated yourself. Everybody's got to get their phone out. Well, you should still be connected. You don't have to go through the whole connection process again, but just send in that text. We'll give it a few minutes or seconds, maybe not minutes. <laughs> okay, that looks good. So yeah, so it sounds like you know there's some people who are really treating a lot of patients, and then we have some novices. So I hope that part of what I'll do in this talk is convince those of you who are more novice treaters to um, that this is a really good time to start treating hepatitis C if you're not already doing it for your own patients. Um, so like I said, there's some guidelines out there. The IDSA ASLD came together and created a guidance document, which I will plug has a new, much more user-friendly format of kind of uh, that's easier to use, especially on a mobile device. Um, and then EASL also has some recommendations. They are not updated yet this year, so they don't have the, new, the newest drugs included in them. But the uh, other, the, the IDSA ASLD guide guidance document was just updated for the new release of, of the newest drugs. So I'm going to talk about um, the different classes of drugs. I'd like to start this out with just a way for those people who are novice treaters to help them remember the drugs. So if you um, take care of patients with HIV, you know a lot of these drug classes already. There's protease inhibitors, polymerase inhibitors, both nukes and non-nukes. There is a different class also called NS5A inhibitors. And, um, 
The us are systematically named, which is very helpful. So anything that ends in Previer is a protease inhibitor, and I remember that because both start with PR. <laughs> and uh, for the polymerase inhibitors, they all end in Bouvier. That's whether they're a nuke or a non-nuke, so you can't tell that difference. And then the NS5A inhibitors all end in Asvir, and I remember that because AS looks like 5A backwards. So people often tell me that's the only thing they remember from this talk, and if, if that's true, that, that at least you learned something, right? What do we all retain 10% of what we learn or whatever? So. Um, how do we use them? Well, just like HIV, we'll combine them, and these are the approved combinations that can be used. There's both, uh, also similar to HIV, there's nuke sparing and nuke containing regimens. For hep C, the reason to use nuke sparing regimens sometimes may be different reasons than why we choose them for HIV, but one that's in common is renal insufficiency. So the only uh, current, um, currently approved nucleotide is sofosbuvir, and that is, uh, um, can be used with creatinine clearance above 30. So as of now, I think, think that may change over time, but as of now, it's not approved for creatinine clearance use below 30. We're not exactly sure how to dose it. Um, other reasons may be drug-drug interactions, particular um, that with sofosbuvir, you can't use it with amiodarone, for instance. Um, there are some, some of the regimens have interactions with PPIs that we'll talk about throughout the day. Um, and then duration and then of access is also just what what regimen uh, insurance co will cover often plays a role here. So I'm going to put today's talk in the context of a case. Um, so this is a 55-year-old African-American man who has hepatitis C genotype 1B, also has cirrhosis, and has a hep C RNA level of 221,000. He's uh, never been treated for hep C, really just didn't want to take interferon in the past, and um, had the cirrhosis diagnosis made with transient elastography, and I think we'll talk more about how to diagnose cirrhosis throughout the day, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that. But it is important in a cirrhotic patient to evaluate if they have any symptoms of decompensation, which we'll also talk about in our next lecture. Um, whether they have varices and to rule out the possibility of hepatocellular cancer, which was also done. Um, he has some other medical problems. He has high blood pressure, renal insufficiency, creatinine clearance of 25, high, blood, um, high cholesterol. He also has um, GERD and is on a proton pump inhibitor for that. And is uh, hep B surface antibody negative, surface antigen negative, a core, isolated core antibody positive, which we often see in our co-infected patients. So which of the following regimens would not be recommended for this patient? And for the purpose of this question only, we'll kind of disregard his renal function, so don't put that into this equation. Um, and don't worry about the drug-drug interactions for this question. So which just would be an appropriate regimen for a genotype 1B patient with cirrhosis who's treatment naive? Would you use Sofilvox, Sofilpatisvir, Elbisvir, Grisoprevir, or Glicoprevir, Pabranisvir? which is approved for this indication and is you know, a recommended regimen to use. One, two, three, or four. Not. What? Which is not, I'm sorry. Which is, I want you to indicate the one that's not. <laughs> um, so, and if you don't know, we completely welcome guessing because if part of this, I'm going to give you a chance to answer this question again. I wanna see if I made any progress. Okay, so 36% um, said Sofilvox, 32% Sofil, 11%, and 21% for the others. I'm not gonna give you the answer right now. I'm gonna make you wait until we talk about it. Um, the next question, testing for hep C resistance would be indicated in this patient with hep C genotype 1B if, number one, he'd failed PEG-RIBA in the past, two, you plan to treat with eight weeks 
of, I'm just gonna call this GP from here on out, GP. You plan to treat with 12 weeks of Grisoprovir Elbisvir, no resistance testing's not necessary here, or hmm, what's a RAS? So, give that a little time. And again, I'm not gonna give you the answer right now, there are correct answers to both of these, but we'll, after we talk about it, we'll do the questions again, and we'll give the correct answer then. Okay, so half the people thought resistance testing wasn't necessary, then uh, we'll discuss the other options when we get to that. Um, this one I was gonna skip, okay? So we're gonna cover that a little bit in case. Okay, so we're gonna talk about what do, um, what do you need to know prior to treating someone, for those of you who haven't treated. So there's obviously the hepatitis C genotype and the subtype can be important in choosing regimens, so definitely need to know that. Sometimes we'll do resistance testing, we'll talk about when for initial treatment that we would do that. Whether someone has cirrhosis or not is pretty much is a critical thing, right? Because you not only need to manage their hep C infection, you then need to manage their liver disease and, and do screening and uh, for hepatocellular cancer as a follow-up for that patient. Um, and then prior treatment will also affect which regimen you may choose. Uh, other medications in terms of drug inter interactions, certain comorbidities are really important. We talked about renal function briefly, and we'll cover that more in this talk. Um, and then HIV infection because of the drug-drug interactions primarily, but also because of duration of treatment. Lastly, what the patients prefer, and if you're going to use ribavirin of child, whether a person's of childbearing potential or not is important. So I'm happy to say ribavirin is not um, needed for most of the recommended regimens now, so it's much less common that we have to use uh, ribavirin for a patient with initial treatment, but it often in retreatment it could play a role. There is a helpline in New York um, that you can call, and, and certain insurance companies require you to manage five patients or something, you know, before you can prescribe, uh, or you have to have a mentor. So this is a way you can get the mentor if you want to prescribe. You're also welcome to email me. It's very simple to do these type of consultations, um, and then we could pick a regimen together just to get experience. So those are some options. So these are the approved drugs for initial treatment. Um, they're listed there. We, uh, uh, some of them have interferon in them, which we no longer used, um, and so we're kind of more focused on the things on the right side. And as you can see here, this is the different genotypes that, that are covered by each regimen, and um, you can see there's several now that are pangenotypic options. So we'll get into more detail. So what about this patient in our case? with genotype 1B. Well, this is the initial treatment recommended regimens. There's four available. Um, for patients with cirrhosis, they're all 12 weeks. Oh, and let me just orient you to the slide. Why are some things crossed out? Was this like a, you know, it wasn't just that I um, forgot to save my changes. I actually wanted to show you that things are rapidly changing in hep C. So what I did was take last year's slide and I just edited it. So these are all, so in each slide, anytime something's crossed out, that's something that was taken off kind of the recommended regimen list. And if something's in bold, it was newly added. So I just kind of wanted to show you the differences compared to one year ago of where we're at for treatment. And I'll do that throughout all the slides that, that look like this. But the good news is that probably there won't be any major changes in this for a few years. So now is a great time to, to get familiar with this list and start trading. Um, so for cirrhotic patients, there's four options. You can see none of them have ribavirin, and they're all 12 weeks long. Um, 
They're all, I should also say, once a day. So very simple. Um, for patients without cirrhosis, some of them can even be given for eight weeks. So again, good options, um, perhaps some money saving by using eight weeks, which is important when there's fixed budgets. For genotype 1A, it's the same as genotype 1B, just with a caveat, which I put in red. If you're going to use the Elvis-Virgo-Zephyrir regimen, um, you do need to do the resistance testing, and that's because we know if there's high-level resistance mutations present, you, you uh, need to either add ribavirin, or, well, you should add ribavirin and extend the duration of treatment, or use something else. You wouldn't want to, in a person who has high-level resistance, um, use this regimen without doing that if you could avoid it. So you may be saying, well, you said this was initial treatment. Why does the person have resistance? It turns out that 10 to 15% of people have NS5A resistance at baseline. It's just a variant of the virus that, you know, there's, that's out there that has a baseline resistance. So this isn't transmitted drug resistance. This isn't really acquired drug resistance. It's just um, the baseline virus. So... Um, so genotype 1A, like I said, very similar to genotype 1B, also four good options, no ribavirin. So I'm going to talk about the newest one, the one that was in bold, which is glicaprevir pibrantisvir. Um, on the left of the slide, there's this, a summary of just all the different studies that contributed to this drug being approved for initial treatment. You can see there's studies for each genotype and patients with and without cirrhosis studies in patients with HIV, with renal impairment. Um, and um, to tell you a little bit about the medication, it's co-formulated. It's three pills once daily. I actually just was discussing with someone in the audience that um, it needs to be taken with food. And that was important because they work in a jail setting where um, they don't normally, if they were going to do directly observed therapy, they don't normally have food available. So something I had never even considered. I thought was an interesting kind of caveat of how you, you know, if you're going to use this regimen, you need to take that into account. Um, it's pangenotypic, so uh, we'll, you know, it's, can use it for any of the genotypes that um, you'll see. And there are, um, we'll get a little into a little more detail about how baseline resistance affects this regimen for genotype 3 when we talk about genotype 3 specifically. Negligible renal excretion, so this is an option for patients on dialysis. It was kind of the first good option we had for patients who had genotype 2 or 3 who were on dialysis, so that's really exciting. But remember, as we talked about earlier, if someone's on dialysis and has hep C, you may want to have the discussion about, you know, do they want to pursue renal transplant? or are they a renal transplant candidate prior to just treating their hep C because of that kidney availability issue. Um, it does have a protease inhibitor in it, so there tend to be more drug interactions with HIV protease inhibitors, and that's definitely something that uh, affects the ability to use this drug in the population of patients with HIV. And there is an interaction with acid-suppressing medications that was seen in healthy volunteers, but it's unclear if it's clinically significant, and I think we may cover that in one of the cases. So, um, how did this drug do in clinical trials? This is sort of a summary of those studies of, uh, for all the genotypes, uh, patients who didn't have cirrhosis. And you can see kind of across the board, very high cure rates, um, either with eight or 12 weeks in patients who didn't have cirrhosis. So, and that's why it was approved for eight weeks of treatment. Low relapse rates. Um, you'll see the only one that maybe is a little bit different. Whoops, I attempted to. 
use a pointer. I won't do that again. Um, the only one that maybe is a little bit different is genotype three, and we'll get into that one. Um, look, kind of focus in on that specific study. Um, if you do, if 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 you are, if you're that very rare patient who is unsuccessful with this treatment, or it is likely that resistance will emerge. We know that when you use a protease. NS5A combination that when the treatment doesn't work, you will likely have resistance merge, and it could very well be two-class resistant, both to the protease and to the NS5A. But fortunately, it's very rare for uh, people to have this regimen not work. What about cirrhotic patients? You can see there's lower numbers overall of cirrhotic patients that were treated, but again, very high cure rates. In this situation, 12 weeks was used for all the patients. Um, and you can see there was a variety of genotypes. There didn't really appear to be any specific factor. There was just one relapse with a genotype 1A patient. So it seems like a good option for cirrhotic patients. Use 12 weeks. Um, the other pan-genotypic regimen that's available, sofapadesvir. I'm just summarizing here the data in co-infected patients, because I know you, a lot of you see co-infected patients. And you can see there were, again, very high cure rates. These have not been compared head-to-head. -head. In general, you know, with a couple exceptions, one of which I'll show you, most of the hep C drugs were not compared head-to-head -head with the other recommended regimens. But you know, all of them kind of perform well independently. Um, so we don't really know how they would stack up head-to-head. -head. Again, um, very high cure rates, pangenotypic, so another good option. So what was looked at um, in terms of newer drugs was adding a protease inhibitor into sofosbuvir velpatasvir, which, as you know, was a nuke and an NS5A inhibitor. So adding in a protease inhibitor, could you shorten initial treatment to eight weeks? So give eight weeks of a three-drug regimen, versus giving two of the drugs for 12 weeks? Is it, is it, does it work as well? And that was a question that was um, answered with this phase three study. And in fact, it did not meet the non-inferiority criteria. Um, and that was primarily because of patients with genotype 1A. As you can see there, only 92% of them were cured with eight weeks of the triple therapy, whereas 99% were cured with the dual therapy for 12 weeks. And there were just more relapses in those genotype 1A patients. And for that reason, this regimen was not approved for initial treatment of, um, of hep C. It plays a very important role in retreatment of hep C. And for that, it's given longer than an eight-week duration. In general, it's given for 12 weeks. So which of the following regimens would not be recommended for this treatment-naive patient with genotype 1B? Um, would it be the triple therapy, the dual therapy, or the other two dual therapies? So which one would not be recommended for this patient? Okay, good. We improved, yay. So yeah, so that we, for you know, retreatment, it is a huge advance for hep C to have this regimen, but for initial treatment, we don't need it. And actually adding in the third drug adds a little additional GI side effects. So it also, you know, maybe isn't tolerated as well, although, didn't really lead to treatment discontinuations. That wasn't the reason it didn't do as well. Just I think the shortening the therapy was uh, the main reason. So, um, so very important role for treatment experience patients, but for initial treatment, don't use that regimen. What about patients with co-infection? So I showed you the SOFVEL data already, and essentially the rule across the board is that we use the same regimens for patients with HIV as we do for those with HIV and hep C as we do for those with hep C mono infection. So you do not need to use different uh, regimens. It's, you can just look at the guidelines for um, whatever genotype 
that you know your patient has and use the same thing. There's just the only caveat is for um, cefospor lidiposphere, it's recommended to use 12 weeks. There is some real-world data on using eight weeks, but in general, you know, uh, the clinical trials did not study that, and or the the large clinical trial did not study that. And so for that reason, it's recommended for 12 weeks. And I can, if anybody has questions about that, we can definitely talk about that more. Um, for um, and the other major issue, of course, is drug drug interactions. So the guidelines have a beautiful table that kind of summarizes the drug interactions and they give you a red, yellow, or green. So you kind of, when you definitely wouldn't want to use a combination versus yellow, you know, maybe if you need to, or maybe there's just not that much data, green is kind of like a go ahead. It seems like it would be fine. So that's a good resource for um, checking for those drug interactions. How did GP do in HIV patients? Um, so this study actually was designed to give the uh, GP in the way that it was ultimately FDA approved, which was give it eight weeks for patients without cirrhosis, 12 weeks if patients had cirrhosis, and this is the modified intent to treat data showing it, using it in that way, there were very high cure rates. The only uh, person who had, um, that wasn't cured, had a viral breakthrough on treatment, and that patient had genotype three and cirrhosis. And we'll talk a little bit more about geno three in a minute. So my other question was about when to do resi resistance testing. So I had already mentioned these NS5A resistance-associated mutations are relatively common at baseline, so in people who've never had treatment. Um, the significance of them probably depends on what the actual mutation is, whether uh, the patient's been treated in the past. So those mutations that are acquired probably are more of a problem than the ones that kind of happened at baseline. So if you actually were given a regimen and it didn't work and you acquire a mutation, that's a more important mutation or more likely to impact the success of a regimen than the ones that happen at baseline. And it's not entirely clear why that is, whether it's, you know, um, that there's just a higher percentage of virus with the mutation or whether it's more likely that you have multiple mutations on the same uh, strand of a virus or same sequence of a virus, but um, it's what we know to be true. So, um, but for initial treatment where it does seem to impact outcomes are when you're using treatment with grizepavir albizir for 1A um, and or for genotype three with cefospirvapatosphere when the patient has cirrhosis. And I'll show you the data on both these. Uh, I just wanted to show you kind of what a genotype looked like. So on that far right, I know it's kind of blurry, but that's just how it comes back. So it says, in this case, lidiposvir resistant predicted. Um, but I just mentioned that's actually not even a setting where I would recommend you check for using it. And you could still use lidiposvir um, if this was a patient who had never been treated before. So it's a little confusing how these come back because, you know, you, so that's why it, it, it sort of, they may be present, but they may not impact the outcome of the treatment if you have a regimen that is a potent regimen. Um, so I would only check them when you're planning to use the information, is what I would say at baseline. So if you're going to use albasvir grisepravir for 1A, you should check. If you're going to use uh, the setting of genotype 3 where to actually do something about it, then I would check. But for our patient who had genotype 1B, checking is really not indicated because you're not going to change how you manage the patient because we know from studies it didn't really change the treatment outcome. So here is that albasvir grisepravir data. And so um, 
This was the phase three study in mono-infected patients. Overall, 92% of genotype 1A patients were cured, whereas 99% of genotype 1B patients were cured. When they looked at the genotype 1A patients and really broke it down, which is done in the table by resistance in that box on the far right, are the, um, was the virus with this high-level baseline resistance. And you can see those patients with genotype 1A, or genotype, yeah, 1A were not cured as much, whereas genotype 1B, it didn't make a difference. So for that reason, uh, we don't do baseline-resistant testing for genotype 1B, but we do for 1A for this regimen. So re-asking this question. So testing for hep C resistance would be indicated in our genotype 1B patient with cirrhosis if, which of those? Good, so resistance testing isn't necessary because they're genotype 1B. And the, the only um, setting for initial treatment for genotype 1 patients where we check is 1A with grizeprovir albasvir. GP, we don't check at all. Um, and the grizeprovir albasvir is only if it's 1A, and this was 1B. So that was a little bit tricky question, but we still improved. Um, what about, I had mentioned this patient did have renal insufficiency. So what regimens are actually an option? His creatinine clearance was 25 below the threshold for where uh, we would use sofosbuvir under kind of how it's re recommended in the label. So the available options are elvivir, grizeprovir, and uh, GP. So both were studied in patients with renal disease, patients, including patients on hemodialysis, and both do um, fantastic. So there's two good options. Um, the GP is pangenotypic, so I mentioned specifically for those patients with genotype two or three, it was the first time I really had a you know, really good treatment to offer them, so exciting. Um, here's the data for GP. 98% curates in their intent to treat population with uh, renal disease. It was, they kind of just combined all genotypes in the study. You can see the breakdown of the different genotypes there. They had a good kind of distribution of various genotypes. Drug-drug um, interactions, the other kind of most important problem. This is the types of drug classes I always think about because there tend to be a lot of drug interactions with these. Um, and, but, but moreover, I also always go to one of these websites. This, if you haven't ever used this Liverpool website, it's amazing, both for, there's a hep C one and there's an HIV one, where it allows you to choose the regimens. And in this case, um, I just clicked every, all four of those recommended regimens, and then I clicked what medication he was on, which was a meprazole, and it spits out a nice table of, um, which ones may possibly have drug interactions. And then when you, you can also click on the link and it'll actually give you the data behind like what was the drug interaction that was seen. So in this case, Elbrosevir grisepravir came out as not having a drug interaction with his omeprazole. Um, the GP, the glucopravir levels are lowered and we'll talk about whether in clinical trials that was important kind of during one of the cases. So I'm gonna skip that one again because we are covering it. Um, the other major drug interactions is antiretrovirals, of course, and I mentioned the hep C protease inhibitors and the HIV protease inhibitors typically cannot be used together or you'll need to monitor closely in some cases where it's necessary to use them together. Um, but another major interaction is with tenofovir. So both lidipasvir and velpatasvir, which are part of two of those recommended regimens, um, interact with tenofovir by increasing tenofovir levels. So the hep C medication levels are fine, but tenofovir levels go up. And since HIV protease inhibitors or their boosters, including cobacistat as a booster, 
increase tenofovir levels as well. Um, when you combine all three of those things together, you could potentially get into a situation where tenofovir levels are outside of what we consider like the therapeutic window and potentially could be um, harmful to the kidneys, particularly in a patient who maybe has baseline renal problems where you wouldn't really want um, to you know, create an, a, a potentially dangerous situation. Now, many studies have actually looked at this, and because I think because hep C treatment duration isn't, it's only 12 weeks, sometimes eight weeks, it hasn't been a huge problem in the studies, but you know, often clinical trials at least limit who can enroll in the studies to people with normal creatinine clearance. And I think we know from our patient populations that's not always the case. Many you know, patients have, um, have some renal insufficiency. So, but the, but this issue has essentially gone away, for me at least, because I'm able to prescribe most of these patients TAF. So if there's a patient who I'm concerned about the potential for increasing tenofovir levels, I always just switch them to TAF. I figure, why take the chance? Why you could potentially monitor some of these situations, but if TAF is available and you can get it approved, why not just switch? Why not make it as safe as possible? So that's what I do. Um, but I guess in a situation of maybe a patient on PrEP who you wouldn't feel comfortable with TAP, who needed hep C treatment, that's a setting where I would, you know, potentially monitor. But they wouldn't be on the COBE, so you wouldn't have the levels going up as high. So, um, so TAF was a huge advance for getting our patients treated. Uh, genotype 4, essentially identical to genotype 1. Genotype 2. Uh, is the same as last year, except the addition of GP. So two great options for genotype two. Genotype three, we'll spend a little more time talking about that. Again, the same uh, two options with the caveat of that you may want to do some resistance testing if the patient has cirrhosis, and I'll show you why. Um, if you do this resistance testing and you find that the patient has a mutation that predicts uh, not doing as well, the sulfosphobia the phosphorus valpatosphere, you have two options. You could add in rivavirin, or you could try to use sofelvox, which may uh, have additional benefit. That is not approved for initial treatment. You'd probably have to do some serious letter writing to get it, I'm guessing. But you know, um, if a person couldn't tolerate rivavirin, I think that's an option that I would consider. So let me show you the data of why. So um, the initial kind of treatments that were available for genotype 3 was sofosfavir and teclatosfavir, and it worked very well for patients who didn't have cirrhosis. In that box that's circled, you can see of the F0 through F3, 96% were cured with 12 weeks of sofosfavir and teclatosfavir combined. But it really fell off when it came to um, cirrhotics. I'm showing you this data because that's what um, the GP was compared to, so just to kind of have a... Uh, idea of what was available at the time that um, GP was studied. So now the GP. In treatment-naive patients without cirrhosis, um, it was, uh, like I said, 8 and 12 weeks of GP were compared to 12 weeks of sofosfavir diclatosphir, which we just saw does very well for patients who don't have cirrhosis, who have genotype 3. So in this population without cirrhosis, it was found to be non-inferior to sofosfavir diclatosphir, so a good option. There was um, though kind of a little hint that there may be a problem in the setting of uh, a, a resistance mutation that really hadn't been a problem in the past. And I'll show you this data on this slide. So of the people who eight weeks, or of the people whose GP did not work for, 
half of them um, had a baseline mutation with this mutation A30K. So that was different than the Y93H one I mentioned and the other thing. The Y90H, no, Y93H actually didn't pr predict this not working. Um, but half of the patients who, who they didn't work for had this mutation at baseline. And if you look kind of in the details, which, um, again, I'm kind of showed up blurry, sorry about that. But if you look at with A30K, uh, eight weeks is, was 78% were cured, and if you look at 12 weeks, 93% were cured. So there's a difference there, but it's a small number of patients, so it's not really clear if it's you know, a true finding. Should we be checking for A30K, and if they have it, should we extend treatment? That the numbers are really just too small to tell, so I think that's something we'll learn from real world. Maybe it comes down to having A30K and some other mutation, or you know, what is exactly this association? And then um, in terms of patients with cirrhosis, which is all the way on the right, there was only one patient, and that patient was cured, but it's hard to say much about that. So I think this A30K thing with the GP is just something we need to follow up, and as we get more real world data, we'll understand. Um, importantly, genotype three is cirrhosis. Um, everybody. There was a, a separate study looking at giving 12 weeks of GP either with or without ribavirin. The addition of ribavirin didn't seem to make a difference. All, everybody was cured. So the recommendation is GP for 12 weeks, no ribavirin. Uh, so phosphorovalpatosphere, this is the case where in the setting of cirrhosis, we are, recommend doing the resistance testing. And that's because when um, in the phase three study of of genotype three with sophosphorovalpatosphere for 12 weeks, there again were very high cure rates, um, but, and that's the light gray bars, the dark gray were sophosphoriribavirin, very high cure rates, but not quite as high in cirrhosis. And when you really looked at kind of who, where was the big, uh, where did most of the treatment failures lie, it, it ended up being people who had this Y93H mutation, and most of those patients had cirrhosis. So you can see of patients with Y93H, uh, only 84% were cured, whereas if you had no Y93H, it was 91%. So the, the recommendation is if you have genotype 3, cirrhosis, Y93H, and you're using sofvalpatosphere, go ahead and add in the ribavirin. And the other option, as we mentioned, if you can add in ribavirin, is add in a third drug with the voxelepravir. Um, this is the study and how it did with treatment naive. Because it's approved for 12 weeks, I would use 12 weeks, not eight weeks, as it was studied for initial treatment. But 12 weeks is what it's approved for retreatment. So if you're going to do this, that's why we recommend 12 weeks. So I just kind of want to go through this patient to solidify some of these decision-making points and show you how to approach kind of an individual patient. So kind of the algorithm I use in my mind or, you know, in my note is that first I look, think about the, the genotype subtype and whether there's resistance. Um, in this case, he was 1B, so we didn't need to do resistance testing, and there's four recommended regimens for genotype 1B. Then I consider HIV status. This patient was negative. Do they have cirrhosis? Yes, this patient did, so no eight-week regimens for this patient, they would all be 12 weeks. He's compensated cirrhosis, we didn't talk about this, but I think it'll come up later. So um, if their person's decompensated, you won't wanna use hep C protease inhibitors. If they're compensated, it's okay to use them. He had creatinine clearance less than 30, so you can't use any regimen with sofosbuvir, so now we're down to two regimens. He's on a PPI, so there's um, some recommendations about how to use the PPI with each of those. And then the last is kind of, you know, how many pills is it? Is it with or without food? 
um, and those that's listed there. And then ultimately, a lot of times it comes down to what does the payer cover. But if we are in an ideal world, that wouldn't be the the only decision point. Um, so is this as good as Hep C treatments get? I'm going to kind of sum up here, and hopefully you'll have some questions. There's been you know huge advances, as I hope I've showed you. We now have options for pretty much every situation I can think of, including genotype two and three and end-stage renal disease. Um, the SVR rates for co-infection now mirror mono-infection. There's still drug-drug interaction issues, but there's a lot of helpful resources out there for managing them. We do resistance testing in these certain situations, um, and it's just important to remember that successful treatment prevents cirrhosis and stage liver disease, hepatocellular cancer, and also you know, prevents other people from getting infected. Post-SVR, we'll talk about how to manage that because it's um, for, you know, the hep C treatment is not necessarily the end of the patient's liver disease and people need to be monitored afterwards. So thank you. I hope this was helpful. Thanks very much, Kristen. That was sure. a fantastic tour of hep C treatment and putting the new drugs into perspective. So now we have a chance to ask uh, some questions about that, to, to clarify some, some points. One, one good question has already been asked, and, and it's, it has to do with co-infected individuals. And is there ever a CD4 count where you wouldn't treat a HIV, HCV co-infected individual? Right. Like just less than 200, less than 100? No, I, I, there isn't a CD4 count at which you wouldn't treat. And you should also remember if a person has cirrhosis, that can sort of artificially lower their CD4 count because of splenic sequestration. And that setting, usually the percentage is, is higher than kind of the absolute CD4 count. Um, but I have, you know, I will say just anecdotally, a few of my patients who relapsed did have lower CD4 counts, like very low CD4 counts. And I do wonder if they're a little bit harder to treat just because you don't have the immune system there kind of at the end to maybe mop up every last virus. So, um, but you treat them the same as the recommendation. Let's make it simpler. Is there any patient anywhere, anytime <laughs> that you don't, that you think is better off with hepatitis C than without hepatitis C? Dialysis. Yeah. There's a good one. Because it's the, the, the... I mean, if someone, you know, occasionally someone has a comorbidity where you know these are, you know, they are very likely, and it's not liver-related, to potentially pass away, and maybe there would be no benefit to treating. And I think the guidelines address that if the expected mortality is less than a year for non-liver-related causes. Um, and then I think the other setting that comes up is sometimes, yeah, people on the liver transplant list, if they're very decompensated by treating their hep C, you can actually kind of improve their numbers, and then they might not be eligible for transplant. So I think that's a decision that needs to be made between sort of a a patient, a liver transplant expert. Those probably aren't the people we'd be treating. Mm -hmm. And you, and you, you agree that the, the, the transplant. We'll get, sorry, we'll get right to you. That uh, the transplant, uh, the person waiting on end-stage renal disease, it's always better to get their transplant as fa as fast as you can. Yeah. Uh, now, what if someone's asking, what if they're on peritoneal dialysis instead of hemodialysis? Does that change anything in oh, terms of the, whether to treat or how to treat? I'd have to look that up, actually. Any PharmDs who know the answer to that? But I, I wouldn't think that would make a difference because it's um, with the with the regimens that aren't renally cleared. You'd still want to treat to get the, the transplant first if you could, and then treat afterwards if possible. Yeah. So go ahead. Uh, there's a question on uh, the uh, proton pump inhibitors. Uh, in patients on proton pump inhibitors who don't have uh, Barrett's, 
and there are concerns about the pH and absorption. Uh, I switched them over to caraphate, and I was wondering if there had been any studies on that or if other, other people have tried that strategy. Because it doesn't interfere with the pH. I, I have not seen caraphate. That's a great question. I've not yeah. seen that study. It is a pH issue. So, yeah, I mean, um, I probably would think of that kind of like Tums, but I'm not sure. You know, the, um, in general, if I kind of go through, I mean, do, I think half the people I talk to or on them don't even know why they were put on them or aren't even taking them. So, like, I feel like half the population, the PPI conversation goes very well, and we just aren't going to use it for three months. And then there's that half who really need them for some reason, and Barrett's might be a reason that you'll just have to manage the best you can, and if possible, choose a regimen where there aren't interactions. You know, I think there's different patients that I worry about more than others. Like, some people have every hard-to-treat characteristic in terms of virus and, you know, host, and I worry about those people, and I really try to optimize everything if I can. And then there's the people who I think are going to be easy to cure, and if they can't get off their PPI, I worry a little less. But I dose it in the way that's recommended. Um, question about folks that come in for treatment that are on anti-epileptics where there's a risk of switching them off. I have no idea what we do with treated patients and with success, but sometimes the insurance providers don't want to approve it for that reason. So I don't know if you have any guidance or if there's anything coming up. Yeah. Stars PK data. So some of the ones that interact less, and I probably will use the trade names because I'm not sure. Kepra and Binpat don't interact as much. Um, so if they can be on those, you know, if the if the um, their epilepsy doctor feels it's okay to transition to those, and I know they like to do that very slowly, so it may delay Hep C treatment for quite a while. Um, and then I if I think if you absolutely, you know can't, then I just try to uh, figure out what kind of reactions we need to be monitoring for, how serious are these interactions, and take it from there. Yeah, my perspective is that is one of the most difficult situations, yeah. and one where I did a seminar with the guy that writes the Liverpool site, and he, that's a hard stop. It's not one of these ones that you can just sort of work around. You have to do just what Kristen said, and hope the neurologists give ground because we can't. It's, it's, a, it's a tough one. Uh, other, other questions? What, so just give us a, a quick uh, sense of how, how you deal with hepatitis B testing before you start hep C treatment. Is that, how have you integrated that into your practice? Right, so in this patient, I didn't really have time to, had I had another 15 minutes, would have addressed that he was, I don't know if you remember in the case, core antibody positive, isolated core antibody positive. He was surface antigen negative, surface antibody positive. So um, there were some reports of treatment with DAA sort of, during, during the treatment period of DAAs, people's hep B reactivating. And um, while it hasn't been, in, in many of the U.S. studies, found to be a common occurrence, it certainly has been described. So the people who are at most risk of reactivating hep B are those people who are surface antigen positive. But as we know, I mean, I think a lot of you know from um, managing patients who are isolated core antibody, when people undergo immunosuppression, things, hep B could reactivate in that setting. And so that's a population that's a potential concern. Um, but in the most of it, at least the U.S. studies, that really hasn't been seen to be happening. But it's something, um, what we ended up saying in the guidelines was for the surface antigen positives, you should monitor for it. You should obviously check their DNA level at baseline. They have indications for treating hep B, you should treat it. If they're 
below detection, you should monitor for reactivation. If they're surface antigen negative but isolated core antibody, that's a situation where if their LFTs rise or you know, they're having symptoms that suggest hepatitis, you would want to check and see if hep D, hep B explains that. So you want to have it in your mind. Because the, the, those reactivations that occurred, they were actually, you know, some of them required even though there were only like 29 cases, some of them required liver transplant or, or actually died. And I think it was partly because hep B wasn't recognized as what was happening. I think people thought it was drug toxicity. These were when the drugs were brand new, were being studied. So I think if you know, you know, the reactivation of hep B is a theoretical possibility. If you see some liver enzymes going up or symptoms of hepatitis, you should check for it. And if it's reactivating, then you can manage it. And if you ask a question that I have not taken over here, it's because we're going to shift some of these to the case presentations and or to Dr. Charleston, like the DCOM, because he's like the world's expert on that. So uh, tell us about mixed infections. So you have a patient with the genotype, the hep C genotypes come back mixed, little one, little three, one A, three mix. Right. What would you do with so that? For, for mixed infections, you can use a pangenotypic regimen now, and you want to treat right. the harder scenario, obviously. One setting where I, I worry about this is more of, you know, even if it doesn't test positive, are an active drug users. So I have an uh, ongoing study treating um, active drug users in New York with uh, injection drug users for hep C. And I do think if in that setting, if you can use a pangenotypic regimen, it might, um, because sometimes if you look closely, people can have mixed infections. And in our initial kind of run of treating people, we had a few people who had genotype one, were treated, and had very early um, relapse or reinfection, and it was genotype three. Now maybe they were reinfected, maybe they were infected by a, you know, a, a new virus, or we thought maybe since we were targeting Geno1, the Geno3 actually kind of broke through. So we, can, we don't have samples to prove that, but I, it's at least a theoretical concern. If you look at active drug years, they may have mixed genotypes. I think it would be ideal to use a pan-genotypic regimen there. But definitely real, you know about them. Real quick, what about somebody actively drinking lots of alcohol? Oh, yeah. This one drives me nuts. I do not think that's a reason to not treat someone. We would not not treat their hypertension or anything else. I mean, they have two problems there. I think you should uh, treat hep C, and obviously if you think their alcohol use is going to interfere with their hep C treatment, that's a different pathway. But uh, otherwise, I would tackle the hep C, and then you can continue to tackle the alcohol. But I do not think act alcohol um, you know, overuse should be a reason for not treating hep C. It's more of a reason to treat them. Which genotypes, just to be real clear, uh, do not need, which, which need resistance testing? When do you ever do a resistance testing for initial? So for initial treatment, it's only 1A if you're going to use albuzivir, grazeprevir, or genotype 3 in cirrhosis if you're using sofosbuvir, okay. Um For retreatment, that's when, you know, the testing may be more important. Yeah. And then last but not least, what is the website that you keep referring to? Oh. So there's two I was probably referring to. So hcvguidelines.org is the IDSC AASLD. If you just search HCV guidelines, it will pop up. Um, that's a very helpful, I, I refer to it all the time because it's hard to, rec you know, even though things have gotten a lot simpler, it's hard to remember every scenario, right? It's like syphilis. I can never remember every scenario of syphilis. I have to look that up every time. So I just go to those guidelines, kind of, it's organized by genotype, cirrhosis or not, and it's really easy to just verify your own thinking, if nothing else. For the retreatment, I think it gets much more complicated. I always look at it for retreatment. Great. Thanks very much. Kristen. Thank you.